You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Zuman, Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our Quartermaster Heather. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. The news that the captured Venetian ship Rainiera Isodorina had been lost at sea, along with her captain, sent Europe into a frenzy. John Ward was Europe's most wanted. He was a menace, a pirate. He was the pirate in the Mediterranean. Countless lives had been lost due to slavery or death on his orders. Mountains of treasure had been lost as well, not to mention the ships. If he were dead, that should be the best news anyone with an interest in Mediterranean trade had heard in some time. And yeah, for most of them, it was great news. The merchants and sailors that carried out trading voyages, for example, not to mention the investors that financed them. All of those people were pleased and relieved that John Ward was no longer a threat. But not everyone shared that sentiment. Everyone said they were greatly relieved, but the English ambassador to Venice wrote, quote, Were to God the news were true, if it be true, this may free the seas, end quote. And that sounds kind of like relief, but it's not really. The obvious problem here is that nobody had a body. No one had a ship. Everyone seemed to be saying that John Ward was dead, and there were reports from a number of different ships from all of the Mediterranean nations that confirmed it but still no one had any proof. So there was the question of legitimacy, and that was a big one. But then there was the question of the aftermath, of the consequences. The question of what the practical outcome of Jack Ward's sinking and dying would be. The traders and merchant companies and those investors all had a lot to lose with John Ward sailing the high seas. But in a very real way, many of the people much farther up the social ladder had a lot more to lose. That is, more to lose if Jack Ward had had his last wish fulfilled, to be buried in the sea. The crowned heads and the power brokers of Europe were gearing up for a war here. King James and Lord Cecil and the Lord High Admiral had big plans simmering there in England, and they revolved around that question of their very own homegrown arch-pirate. In Venice, the Doge and Senate were in a similar situation, they were gearing up for that conflict, and now all of that was dashed. And then France, Germany, Spain, Austria, and the Netherlands, they were all on the alert as well. 
They were calling up reserves. They were having discreet conversations in dimly lit hallways about who might be the smart choice when it came to allies. Venice was the obvious choice here, but remember Europe wasn't far removed from England's miraculous victory against Spain in the Channel. England might be the underdog, but sometimes it pays to bet on the underdog. And that's really what this was all about. There was a lot of money to be made in this war. Even if you were on the losing side, it was entirely possible, through some smart diplomacy, to walk away with an acceptable peace treaty that grew your own honor, it grew your prestige and your power and your wealth. Now, one might expect Spain to side with Venice against England, but maybe not. Venice was at odds with Rome at the moment, and the Pope might not look too kindly on either Spain or the Holy Roman Empire siding with them. England was, in many ways, a much better choice, despite their recent enmity. King James was rumored to hold a certain sympathy for the Catholic faith and the Catholic people. Perhaps he would make a very good ally. Really, though, it all depended on what France decided to do. That's what they always did here anyway. France and the Habsburgs would be at odds in this war as they were in nearly every war. They could fight over their shared border and contested territories in the lowlands again. And it was about time Europe had a good old-fashioned war. It had been a few years, and there were a few new monarchs sitting on the thrones. And there were a lot of lingering questions about religion and succession and colonial holdings. It was really a perfect time for war. Perhaps the only monarch in the European sphere, or, you know, council or senate or whatever, but perhaps the only one who was genuinely relieved to hear that Ward was dead was the Ottoman Sultan. The Venetian ambassador in Istanbul wrote the doge inquiring about the fate of Ward. The Sultan was deeply concerned about an impending war based upon pirates operating out of lands that he still technically ruled. Without question, Istanbul would certainly be roped into all of this, and currently they were fairly weak, at least at sea. The loss of Tunis was likely, maybe even Tripoli, or maybe even Algiers. The loss of the whole of Barbary might just be imminent. But if John Ward was dead, he was off the hook here. So that one question lay on the lips of everyone in Europe, from King John and Lord Cecil to the Doge and the Senate, from the Pope in Rome to Madrid to Paris to Vienna. Was John Ward really dead? This is episode 93, Bound to a Dead Man's Back. I've been dancing around that question for weeks now, talking about all of the players and ambassadors and nations and the other pirates that had a very real interest in the fate of John Ward. Many of you have probably already figured out something of the truth here, but no one in Europe had that kind of insight. All they had were the rumors passed on by sailors that talked to other sailors that claimed to have seen something. Now there were enough of them that a pattern seemed to be forming— Say you were in charge of planning for the upcoming war, and you repeatedly heard that the cause for that war was currently somewhere at the bottom of the sea. You might just think about putting those preparations on hold. War could be very profitable, but it was still expensive. And if the war wasn't going to happen, all of that expense would just be a waste. So most of those in power started quietly putting their armies away, but two nations were already too far along in their plans and preparations for any of that. England and Venice were at the heart of this conflict, and they 
both had substantial interest in it. For them, it was more than just a few potential territorial gains. It was more than the promise of sharpening their claws and terrorizing a few peasants and raiding some coffers. They had real stakes in the game. For England, those were twofold. They really wanted all of that money that was supposed to come with the pardon of John Ward, especially the Admiralty. Cecil and James were much more interested in securing a dominant place in Mediterranean trade, but that made them no less interested in this war. In a lot of ways, England was forged and tested in this Anglo-Spanish war under Elizabeth, and now many of the men who fought that war wanted to put some of that experience to use. To that end, supplanting the Venetians was a good geopolitical strategy. Plus, it really was a good time for war. For much of Europe, it had been some time, and they had plenty of men ready to go die on a distant battlefield. And then the rift between Venice and the Pope, well, that could change the power structure in Europe significantly, involving Spain and the Holy Roman Empire, the entire Habsburg dynasty. But all of that informed a bigger question. Could King James potentially smooth over some of those old enmities that Queen Elizabeth had left behind? Could James put England on a peaceful footing, or maybe even a friendly footing, with Catholic Europe? That would be a major upset, and it would secure the Stuart dynasty a lot of powerful friends in Europe. And as we know from later events, that's something that he would have been happy to do. But Venice was facing that same question from the other side. If England did manage to secure those alliances, or even promises of peace from some of their old enemies... Venice might fall squarely in their crosshairs. England might actually be able to make good on the threat that Lord Cecil made towards Zorzi Giustinian. They might actually be able to push Venice into the periphery. They might be able to supplant Venice's place in the Mediterranean. They had the ships to do it, and with the blessing of the Pope they would have the friends to do it. But then there were the bigger, more ethereal questions. Honor and duty— the Venetians had been shamed by English pirates over and over and over, and then they were insulted by English officials when they looked for their proper retribution, and that was an insult that required an answer. And what about their losses? I mean, there were ships and treasure and all that was important, but what about the people? How many Venetians had these pirates killed? How many untold thousands were currently enslaved somewhere in Barbary, working as laborers or concubines? And even if they couldn't be rescued, Venice had the opportunity here to deal such a blow that no one else might suffer that fate. They would begin with the pirates of Barbary, but they would move on to anyone who dared interfere with that justice, including the English. So, England and Venice both needed to know. They needed to know if there were any truth to the rumors of John Ward's death. The most reliable account came out of France via Marseille. An Italian ship's captain claimed to have picked up four sailors, three men and one boy. When those sailors were found, they were clinging to the floating debris of what had once been a ship. There had been a storm a day or so ago, but these castaways were clearly corsairs. The real bombshell, though, was dropped when they told the captain of that Italian vessel that they had been sailors aboard the Rainiera Isodarina. That was the most infamous ship in the Mediterranean, perhaps the most infamous ship everywhere, and it was helmed by the most feared pirate in the entire world. If these corsairs were to be believed, 
that ship was currently lying on the seabed off the coast of Greece. Their story was confused, though. They couldn't keep it straight. Each of the men had a different version of the story to tell. It was a sudden squall that sank them. No, it was an ambush that did them in. No, wait, it was a mutiny. Had the English authorities been given the chance to interrogate these men, they may have been able to smuggle out a nugget of truth. But that was impossible. After their rescue, these pirates disappeared. No one knew where they had gone. One can presume that they jumped ship in Marseille or maybe stole a boat, but nobody knows. I can't actually verify that these Barbary Corsairs ever even existed. We have only the single account of these men in particular. But try to look at that tale from the point of view of the English. An English ship arrives in London, bearing the testimony of an Italian captain that he met somewhere in southern France. That Italian captain told a tale of shipwreck and death that could not be verified, and then there were at least three versions of that tale. Would you believe that? When the Venetians, who were themselves Italian, remember, had so much writing on denying John Ward to the English government, would you believe that Ward just sank somewhere in Greece? And remember, the region of Greece in which John Ward allegedly sank was currently under the occupation of the Republic of Venice. So isn't that all just a little bit suspect? But here's the rub. It was true. At least, it's generally agreed today that there is some truth in the account of these four sailors. It's still virtually impossible to verify, but later evidence would come to light that supports it a bit. But that's with hindsight. And in 1608, the English didn't have that luxury, and neither did Venice. They were suspicious of this story as well. You know, who's to say that that Italian captain wasn't paid off to spin this tale? Who's to say that the English didn't send a squadron of ships to Tunis to pick Ward up, then create an elaborate ruse of this supposed shipwreck? They could sneak Ward and his men back to England, collect the hefty fine that Ward had already agreed to pay, and then set him free. Now that might sound a little far-fetched, but I didn't just make that up. That was the firmly held opinion of one Venetian in particular, Zorzi Giustinian, the ambassador to England. As we discussed last time, Zorzi Giustinian deeply distrusted the English people and their officials. He considered the English to be corrupt and pirate sympathizers. And, you know, he wasn't really wrong about that. Corruption was rampant in England. And some within the government, nearly everybody within the Admiralty, was very invested in pardoning Ward to secure some of his plunder. But then again, Giustinian only had a passing familiarity with the truth. He was prone to conspiracy theories and jumped to a lot of conclusions. Sometimes those conclusions worked in his favor, but not always, not even most of the time. A good spy should suspect everyone and everything until proven otherwise. Every parcel of information should be examined and dissected from every angle before being believed. And Giustinian had that down most of the time, But then, a good spy should also hold their own conclusions to the same standard. They should be examined and dissected before being agreed to, even in your own mind. And that's something that Zorzi Giustinian did not do. When word came to England that John Ward was rumored dead, Giustinian dismissed it immediately. He wrote, 
At court this morning I found a rumor that Ward and his ship had been wrecked and lost. Some say that this rumor was set about on purpose by the merchants interested in the goods, end quote. The goods in question were, well, some of them were probably the goods that arrived in England a few months earlier that Ward had pillaged from the Rainiera Isodorina. They were currently locked up in London, and with Ward dead, they would go up for auction. But also, the money that was involved if the English had created this elaborate ruse. Now, on face value, that's a good instinct for a spy. Suspect, distrust, and question everything. But he allowed the rumor spoken by some elusive people to shape his opinion. This worked for Giustinian. It allowed this new development to fall into his predetermined conclusion. But his masters in Venice saw his mistake immediately. They were receiving up-to-the-minute information with every ship that came in, and as the evidence piled up and piled up and piled up, it really did appear that the tale was true. The Rainiere Isodorina had wrecked off the coast of Greece, and nearly every soul on board had been lost. Except for those four survivors, that's almost 350 pirates. And that made Zorzi Giustinian look terribly foolish, but it did serve to lessen the tension between England and Venice. Now, the English didn't believe the Venetian reports, but they had their own agents looking into it, and they brought back similar conclusions. The ship did appear to be long gone, as did Ward. For now, the threat of war was well and truly averted. And that's generally a good thing, but... In this case, with the ability to look back on things, it really might not have been. Now, this is a big what-if, and... All of it is coming from me, so take it all with a grain of salt. But there hadn't been a good general European war for a while now. We're only five years removed from the end of the Anglo-Spanish War, but that was mostly a naval war, and much of it was fought in the West Indies. The Dutch and the Portuguese were currently embroiled in a war, and that would last decades, but again, that was mostly a naval war that took place mostly in the East Indies. The Ottomans and the Holy Roman Empire had a conflict over in Wallachia, and then there were a few rebellions and dynastic struggles, but those were all internal wars. And there were some close calls, much like this conflict that almost erupted between England and Venice, but nothing that came to pass. However, this is 1608. We're only ten years out from one of the most destructive wars that Europe had ever seen. In 1618... Europe was going to explode into the Thirty Years' War. Now, there are a lot of causes that one can point to for the Thirty Years' War. Religious strife and economic equality, territorial disputes, and everyone in Europe generally hating the Habsburgs, even other Habsburgs. Those seemed to be the big ones. And then there were the smaller wars that were roped under the umbrella of the Thirty Years' War. Spain, France, and the Netherlands would fight over that piece of ground that they had been for centuries and would continue to for more centuries. Denmark and Sweden would have a war up north, and a lot of colonies would join in the fray, but close to home. This was a big war. Many consider it the First World War, although one has to perhaps stretch your definition a little bit. Hundreds and thousands of people would die. More than 200,000 soldiers at the least would die due to fighting, probably more. But then there were the common people that died due to famine or plague or witch hunts. 
Everything that was there to cause this war was already there in 1608. You know, nearly everything, at least the big power politics and religion stuff. But maybe, had a general European war broken out over the conflict between Venice and England, those tensions would have been a bit less pronounced. Maybe the war would have been less terrible. If some of the pressure had been released in 1608, it's possible that a lot of questions would have been answered in less terrible ways. Now, they may have had to have another war in 1618, but if many of the problems had been solved a decade earlier, it might not have been as bad. Or, you know, maybe not. Maybe this war in 1608 would have been a small, quick naval engagement in the Mediterranean. After all, it was only about two countries arguing over a pirate and vying for slightly better positions in trade. But I do wonder what might have been. But in the end, it's a pointless question. War didn't break out. Everyone put their guns away. The cause of the war, at least the stated cause of the war, was dead and rotting somewhere in the Mediterranean. Only John Ward was neither dead nor rotting. I wish I could tell you that everything here was all an elaborate ruse on the part of John Ward, that he was actually waiting somewhere in the Mediterranean on board the Rainiera Isodorina to pounce on, you know, whoever, probably Venice. But I can't. Rainiera Isodorina was, in fact, sunk and destroyed. There was a storm out there off the coast of Greece, and the greatest pirate ship Barbary had ever seen was gone. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. But John Ward survived. 
How he survived, though, is the big question. The writers and storytellers and pamphleteers, in London mostly, all tend to agree on one narrative. It's a compelling story, and there's probably some truth in it, but it's also steeped in the sort of religious symbolism that the clergy would approve of. They tell us that Jack Ward was puffed up with pride over his big new warship. Andrew Barker tells us, quote, His mind was so inflated with pride and puffed up with vainglory that he now thought he was the sole and only commander of the seas. And then he goes on, quote, He was lying in wait for more booty. It pleased God to prevent them by a storm that arose, in which the great Argo Sea sunk suddenly, and all the men in her being drowned, save only four. End quote. But they paint Ward as this foul, devilish creature who slipped away at just the right moment to avoid the storm and God's wrath. And there are nuggets of truth in there, but not the whole truth. The investigators that would later on be sent to Barbary to look into the events surrounding the shipwreck, along with historians, have pieced together a much more plausible account of what actually happened out there. What we know looks like this. Ward sailed from Tunis aboard his refitted Rainiera Isodorina in late 1607. She'd been stripped of all of her excess weight and had a couple of dozen new guns installed, including gun ports. Ward sailed out with a fleet, including Ruby and Little John and all of the ships that he personally owned, and then there were a number of pirates sailing their own vessels sailing along with her, men like Captain Foxley and Francis Verney. That fleet sailed for the coast of France, and that was where John Ward turned around and left everyone but Ruby and Little John behind. The rest of the fleet headed towards Spain and the Balearic Islands, where they terrorized the Charity and the Pearl, and you know that whole story. But what we know about Ward here is limited. I mentioned the English merchantman that Ward hailed over near Naples, the captain reported there that Ward cursed the Venetian flat caps and swore death and vengeance on them, and that's really the only account we have of Ward happening concurrent to the events closer to Spain, until he begins to dole out that death and vengeance. It's plausible that John Ward heard about the Venetian ploy to block his impending pardon somewhere off the coast of France. He had spies and agents all across Europe, certainly in Marseille, so one of those spies probably brought him the news about his pardon being blocked by Venice, and that's what set him off on his revenge crusade. He sailed for Venetian Greece and began taking every ship he could. He took a number of them in very quick succession. That was when Venice began to prepare their fleet. They were ready to send out their ships and destroy John Ward, but then that storm caught the Rainiere Isodorina and sank her. Now why did she sink? The generally accepted story is that all of the new gun ports that Jack Ward had cut into the hull weakened it. He had turned her cargo deck, her upper cargo deck, into a gun deck. He may have overdone it here. And then there's a question about the state of the hull outside of the gun ports. Those four sailors said that the Sodorina was rotting. That seems like a bit of a stretch to me, though. Remember, John Ward was an old sailor. He grew up a fisherman, and then a privateer, and then a navy man, and now a pirate. Would he allow his baby, this pride and joy with which he was puffed up in vain glory, to fall into such disrepair? Would the Venetians allow one of their great Argo Sea to fall into disrepair? I don't think so, on either count. But 
That's the story we have, so we have to accept it and work from it. But those sailors had other claims to make. We had three different stories from three different people, that it was either the storm that sank them or an ambush or a mutiny. We could extrapolate what might have happened here. We can use those three stories, along with the reports of contemporary agents, the English writers later on, and what modern historians have concluded. Now I say what might have happened because... Well, what I'm going to do here is stitch together a possible narrative, my own possible narrative. It's going to fit all of the evidence, but it's also going to build from it. It will weave a number of different conclusions reached by different agents into one story. Now, the Soderina was carrying around 350... Well, it's commonly reported that she sank with 350 men on board, but... Upon leaving the port at Tunis, she was carrying 350, well, Turks is probably the best word here. There were Berbers and Jews and Turkish people and Armenian and Greeks, all in that lot, all of them Muslim, including the Janissary contingent. Now, there's no easy shorthand here, and I don't want to call them Turks, so moving on when I say Muslim, I mean that ethnic and national and religious blend right there. When I say European moving forward, I'm referring to the Western European pirates, English, Italian, and Dutch mostly. There were 40 or 50 Europeans on board the Reiniera e Soderina, in addition to the 350 Muslims. And I'm aware that the umbrella of Europeans should include the Greeks and Armenians and maybe the Turks, but I can't call these men Christians because, well, we'll discuss that next time. The Europeans on board Rainiere Sodorina comprised a sort of elite officer class among the crew. The Janissary were sort of their own thing, they had their own position of power as representatives of the day back in Tunis, but the rest of the crew, the Muslim majority, were sort of second-class crewmen. See, Ward didn't subscribe to the later piratical ideas of equality among the crew, or that almost democratic system that would be a cornerstone of pirates and piracy. His ship, his fleet, was delegated into more traditional power roles, similar to the English Navy. The Europeans, in this case, were the officers, and the Muslims were the regular crew. Now, Ward was, well, he was responsible for a lot of firsts in the pirate world. For example, he was among the first pirates to adopt that practice of electing a captain, but his shipboard democracy apparently ended there. His idea of the captain's role was much different from later pirates and much more similar to the English Navy. The captain, Jack Ward in this case, appointed all of the officers himself and made all of the rules. As you can imagine, the majority Muslim corsairs here weren't too happy with that arrangement. They were forced into subservient roles, and on board Rainiere Sodorina, on this, her first voyage as a pirate ship, there were a lot more of them than there had been before. They were recruited in large numbers to flesh out the crew of the ship. So there wound up being a number of squabbles between the crewmen and the officers. Sometimes those broke down into brawls, and occasionally murder. Barker tells us of Jack Ward's rules, quote, His laws were that, in several places in his ships, there should be wine sold, as there is in taverns. 
But with this law, which himself he made, if any one in his drunkenness or otherwise falling out should kill or stab any man, he should be presently bound to the dead man's back and cast into the sea. End quote. Now, outright murder was always punished harshly on pirate ships. It had to be, or else things would break down into chaos and disorder. But there's a big difference here. On later pirate vessels, the accused had the opportunity to tell their side of the story. You know, a pirate might be found standing above a corpse on deck, even with the murder weapon in hand, dripping blood. Obviously, they killed the deceased here, but they would have the chance to explain why they did it. Was it self-defense? Was there a debt involved, or maybe theft? Early in her career, Anne Bonny had to kill more than a few pirates who sought to take advantage of her. Everyone learned better very quickly, of course, but Anne Bonny never faced punishment for it. That was obviously a case of self-defense. But all of the other factors were taken into account as well, things like theft or debt. Now, if that were the case, the perpetrator wouldn't get off scot-free, but they might face a beating or limited rations or something to that effect. But here's the thing. The killer was allowed to tell their story to the crew, and the crew decided their fate, usually at least. It was the crew that decided the guilt or innocence of the accused, and then they followed the rules set down in a code that everyone had already agreed to. That's how it worked later on, usually. But on this voyage of Jack Ward, when tensions between the Europeans and the Barbary natives were running high, the captain personally set down judgment and punishment. Now, we don't have a lot of details, but there was at least one killing on board the Rainiera Isodorina, that's why we know about Ward's policy toward murder. A Muslim sailor murdered a European officer. And Ward decreed that that murderer be strapped to the deceased man's body and thrown overboard. His hands were bound to the dead man. He was unable to swim. He was strapped to a stone. That stone was dragging the man down to the bottom of the sea. I think he may almost have hoped that a shark would come along and finish the job quickly. But we don't know why that sailor killed that officer. Maybe it was an unfair punishment. Maybe it was theft or self-defense. But it didn't matter. That sailor didn't get the chance to tell his story. Ward made his decree and the punishment was carried out. This made the tension on board Rainiera y Soderina even worse. Things began to boil over. It was clear that Ward was losing control of the crew here. And here we're going to find our first major divergence in the story. See, Ward might have been on board the Rainiere Soderina the entire time. He was the admiral of the fleet, and it was a very big ship, should be his flagship, maybe. But the ship did have another captain, William Graves, you know, Bill Graves. God, that's a great pirate name. Bill Graves was Ward's first mate early on. He was the pirate that told Ward that one day he would kill him, and God would send down an angel to bring him directly to heaven for doing the world such a good service. Now, I dispute the legitimacy of that story, but Graves was the master of Rainieri Soderina here. Now, Ward, serving as admiral, may have been on board alongside him. That's what the English tell us. But the Venetians have another version of the story. They say that John Ward was admiral of the fleet, 
from on board the Little John. They tell us that when that officer was killed on board the Soderina, Ward came over to dole out his judgment, or perhaps he came out after the judgment had been handed down to quell the growing threat of mutiny on board his big ship. Either way, according to the Venetian version of the story, Ward came over to deal with some problems and then went back to his ship, Little John. Now, in normal times, that wouldn't be such a big distinction, except for the fact that the Rainiere Isodorina was about to sink with 350 men on board. The English, who tell us that Ward sailed on the Sodorina most of the time, paint their arch-pirate as a terrible villain who abandoned his rotten, leaky ship right before a big storm and heartlessly let 350 men die. They think that he abandoned ship for the Little John and just let fate take its course, which is a commonly accepted version of the story. You could use that in your term paper and be fine. But I think things went a little bit differently than that. Personally, I agree with the Venetian view here. I think Ward was captain of the Little John with Bill Graves on board the Sodorina. I think that Ward came over to Graves' ship to deal with the murder and to pass judgment on the killer, to tie him to a corpse and toss him overboard. But it was probably even before the man was thrown overboard that the tension that had been bubbling, the potential mutiny, began to break free. I imagine the crew milling about uneasily when the judgment was passed, grumbling. And then, when they found out what the punishment was to be, I imagine open anger, I imagine shouting and protests. But Ward was still that larger-than-life figure— he was their admiral, and he was a personal friend of the day back in Tunis. And you know, I wonder who the Janissaries would have sided with here. Would they back their brothers in Islam, or would they back the man that, frankly, made them very, very rich? Remember, Ward was the de facto vice-treasurer of Tunis. He brought in huge amounts of plunder, and he shared it with the day, who then shared it with the Janissary. So... They very well may have sided with Jack Ward and tried to quell any violence that appeared to be breaking free. And you know, perhaps it came to that. Perhaps the crew began to draw swords and line up for battle. Perhaps the English did the same, although there were many, many fewer of them. But then maybe the Janissary stepped in to calm everyone down. And what comes next is where my narrative, my personal story here starts to truly deviate from any other historical accounts. But it does work with the stories told by those pirates who would be rescued a few days later. Just keep in mind that this is my speculation. So things clearly weren't going well between the Muslim crewmen and the Europeans. Why not offer up a solution? Were I in Ward's shoes here, I might come up with something kind of like this— the Rainieri Soderina was a large ship. That's why there were so many new Muslim faces on board. Since there were conflicts with the Europeans, who were the officers on board, why not just give command of the Soderina over to the Muslim corsairs? Now, the Little John was pretty full, but if Ward were to, say, send the Janissary warriors from Little John on over to the Soderina, that would free up plenty of room for Captain Bill Graves and all of the European officers to come aboard Little John. 
The Janissary, who had a position of power in the fleet anyway, could choose their own command structure aboard the Soderina. They could choose their own officers, or make it democratic rule however they wanted to do things. Now, they would still be in Ward's fleet, obviously, that's not going to change, but Ward did magnanimously grant them the right to make their own rules and to enforce them how they saw fit. Now, if this actually did happen, and no one is saying it did but me, but if it did, it would have been an elegant solution. It would keep the Soderina sailing with a competent crew and commanders, and it would keep her in the fleet of Jack Ward. Now, whether or not that did happen, it was around that time that Jack Ward, and we do know this, left the leaky, rotten giant behind, along with Bill Graves and the other Europeans, and boarded Little John. Now, this might just be good timing on the part of Jack Ward. He may have suspected that his big ship might sink in the upcoming storm. Or maybe there was something more nefarious going on. I mean, that's nefarious enough to leave 350 men to die. But what if all three of the tales shared by those rescued corsairs turned out to be true? Maybe not the whole truth, but a part of it. There was a storm, that much is verifiable, but what if there was also a mutiny? And what if there was also an ambush lying in wait? Imagine, and I may be giving John Ward more credit than he deserves here, but imagine that he took his European crew back to Little John. Then he ordered the fleet to wait offshore while the storm passed. This was normal procedure. You didn't want to be tied down through a storm. But when night fell, Maybe Jack Ward sent over a boat or two of experienced killers to do exactly what they were best at. Or maybe he had a few men on the inside, perhaps some of the Janissary who had significantly more loyalty to him than their brothers in Islam. Maybe they crept aboard the Rainiata Isodorina under cover of nightfall and rainfall. Most of the crew would have been hunkered down in their cabins or asleep. Maybe they killed the watchmen. Maybe they sliced a few key lines to disable the sails, or maybe they damaged the wheel. Imagine that small group of hardened killers sneaking into the quiet parts of the ship. Maybe they lit a few fires, maybe in the magazine. And then, maybe they made their way back to Little John. Or, it's possible that they stuck around and hid somewhere on board. After an agreed-upon time... That's when Ruby and Little John crept in on either side of Rainieri Sodorina and opened fire. Imagine a ship filled with sailors preparing to weather out a storm. They were being tossed about by sudden winds and sudden waves, and then all of a sudden coming under fire from both sides. Imagine their surprise when they rushed to the deck to find that all of the lines had been cut, or maybe the wheel didn't work, they were unable to maneuver. Imagine the shock they felt when they found their leaders on board with throats cut open. And imagine the panic that would have engulfed the men when they rallied to fire back on these two ships that were attacking them, and a party of their former comrades burst out to cut them down where they stood. Try to picture being on that deck, fighting for your life with cannonballs flying and wood shattering and men screaming as the storm picks up strength and batters you with rain and throws you about the deck. Your friends are tossed overboard, some of your former friends are slicing open their throats, and then someone yells over the din of battle and the storm that the ship is sinking. 
You can't get to the boats. You can get to them, but you can't take them down to the water because Ward would blow you out of it. But you can't stay here. When the ship goes down and she is most certainly going down, everything around her is going to be taken down with it. Imagine diving overboard through the smoke and through a film of blood into the turbulent waters with a sinking ship pulling at you from behind. Imagine, in that situation, finding a piece of floatsam and clinging on for dear life. Imagine waiting at the storm and the battle and the sinking ship with only a piece of wood keeping you afloat and alive. Imagine dealing with that for an entire night. And then dawn comes. Maybe you have to take a deep breath and slip under the water to avoid notice when Ruby comes close. That's... Well, that's a dramatic representation of something that might have happened. However, four crewmen and one boy may have experienced something like that. At the very least, we can say that Ward did leave Rainiera y Soderina shortly before the storm, possibly knowing that she was going to sink. All of the blood in the battle may not have happened here. That's my invention, working from the stories of three anonymous Barbary pirates who may not have existed according to an Englishman who heard it from an Italian, neither of whom were actually there. But the turbulent seas, the sinking ship, and the clinging on for dear life did happen to many men, and only four survived. Around 350 pirates and janissaries lost their lives in this disaster. Even if Jack Ward didn't treacherously abandon ship and attack her in the night, he did abandon those men to die. And somehow that's almost worse. I mean, if he were a pirate admiral attacking a mutinous crew, there's some sort of valor to be found in that, even if he did so with trickery and ambush. But if he just realized that his ship was sinking and decided to slip away... If he just left his men to die while he sailed safely toward the horizon, I mean, there's no valor in that. There's no excuse for that. That would make John Ward nothing but a coward. And maybe that's all he was. That's the story that the English tell us, after all. Whatever the truth here was, John Ward wasn't going to walk away from the loss of his flagship, the loss of Rainiera y Soderina, unscathed. In terms of strength, Losing his biggest ship and 350 men, well, it weakened him. Many of his allies left him and sailed off for Algiers to sail under Zyman Danziker. And now that, at the end of his voyage, he had no pardon to look forward to, he didn't really have any choice but to slink back to Tunis. And Tunis was a city filled with the family and friends of the men who had just died. Men who... Jack Ward had failed to bring back safely. Many of those family and friends blamed him personally. He was going to suffer through that blame, but when he did return, he discovered the worst news yet, at least for him personally. The day his strongest ally had died. Next time, we're going to follow Jack Ward to Tunis and discuss everything that he faced. We're going to discuss how he coped with the new reality in which he found himself and then, at long last, we are going to discuss the end of the arch-pirate Jack Ward. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has suggested this show, either in real life or on social media, everybody who has left us a rating or a review wherever it is you listen to the show. Without all of you, 
I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the absolutely fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to hear more, you can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, YouTube, or Reddit. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Let him live on in legend tonight.